Hey, cat, get down. I have to say the, this whole George Harrison week has been such a, a thrill for us. There's a lot of love in that house. Yes, of course. And uh, also the, uh, the grounds that uh, it, he, had, he had a lot of, uh, you know, he had a lot of acreage. Um, and he was really very fussy about it himself. You know, I mean, he would, we'd cross a, a pond and if there was something stopping up the, you know, the flow of a, some little creek into it, he'd get in there and pull it out, he loved it, he designed things. Oh, he said this was, I love this, he said, uh, when, you when you drive in, there are these enormous boulders. And uh, I said, I, I said, is that a sculpture or are they, you know, is that natural on the property? And he said, no, they are on the property, but we brought them here and we put them in this, this field over here. And like right around that time, uh, Paul McCartney had put out a, 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 an album called uh, Standing Stone. Mm -hmm. uh, and George said, but when Ringo came here to visit, he said, when Ringo asked me about the Stones, he said, I said to Ringo, oh yeah, Paul sent that to us as a promo for a Stone. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a boulder. <laughs> right, and Ring Ringo said, he didn't send that to me. <laughs> Welcome this week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone and the cat. We're going to pick up from last week with the second set of the Danny Harrison George Fest from, again, hard to believe, nine years ago. But we got a couple of other things we want to mention up front. First off, in our ongoing What's Happening with May Pang segment, <laughs> as we told you last week, the film is going to be in theaters on April the 13th. And much as John predicted, it's not going to be anywhere in the Tyler, Texas area. <laughs> right. So when you go see it, write us a note. So May Pang is doing photography shows. She's showing off her photographs. And if you don't have her book, uh, Instamatic Karma, that is actually a, a pretty nice book. And that has a lot of really sort of behind the scenes photos of her life with John. But she's not a professional. She's making money. She's selling photos of John Lennon just because she has them and she owns the copyright. Right, for the history of it. They're nice and they tell us things, but, well, all right. They're not meant to be art. They're meant to be history. I suppose so. <laughs> so if you're wondering whether it's playing anywhere near you, you can go to 
thelostweekendtickets.com, and you can put in your city, and it will tell you the closest place to you that it is playing. Right. That's the first thing. The second thing, something kind of weird has happened over the last week on some of the streaming services and on YouTube. <laughs> Nor is that all. But, but go ahead, tell us. <laughs> you go on YouTube or you go on the Amazon music service and you will find the John Lennon live in New York City there available for streaming. Now, you listen to it. It is the same old version that we've had for 15, 20 years. Right. And we know that there is a remix remastered version. You know, we've been told that it's been done for at least five or six years. So it's sitting out there. And we got a song or two off it on that John Lennon box from a couple years back. Well, they're clearly messing up. The art that's associated with it in all sites is just this scuffed, beat-up copy of the CD cover. (laughs) Well, the guy only had the weekend to, to do it. Stuck it on the scanner, threw it on the streaming services. And on Amazon, it claims that the release date was... January 22nd. So what's going on? Slow PR, I guess. (laughs) It's one of those, you would think that this is just kind of a a laugh or a bootleg or something that someone managed to get through, but it is from the Lennon folks. Is this part of their ongoing battle over sometime in New York City? (laughs) Could be. It sounds like it's like they're cleaning out their closet. I suppose that's so, but if they were doing that, it's like, why don't you put out the new one? Why don't you put out the one that's done? That almost leads me to believe that that rumor that we've talked about, that the plan is for that record to come out as a live set. Oh, and the other thing about this release, guess what song is on that show? And there's no issues with them putting it back out. It's The next song is one of those many songs of ours that get banned. It's something Yoko said to me in 1968. It took me till 1970 to dig it. Our favorite woman is the, there it is, part of the streaming set. So I would tend to believe it's not Universal Music that's doing it. What does it mean? I don't know. And then one other thing before we get back into Danny, Mel Brooks has put out, in conjunction with a bunch of other folks, History of the World Part 2 as a streaming series on Hulu. One of the segments in the film is... The Last Supper Sessions, where Jesus really is John Lennon. (laughs) You have Judas as George Harrison walking out, and they're pretty spot on about it. And they make several jokes about, do we have to keep doing the Liverpool accents? (laughs) That's what goes on in rock and roll heaven. (laughs) And my favorite little bit of casting, they've combined Mal Evans and Glenn Johns and a couple of other folks into a single person for the purposes of this sketch and he's played by richard kind now that is the absolute best casting i've ever seen richard kind as mal evans i'm speechless i'm speechless it just works so perfectly well i haven't seen it yet so i can't you know what richard kind looks like and you know what big mal looks like and it's like (laughs) wow okay that works right all right on to part two of the george fest from 2014 two things about that lots of little things here there is a japanese blu-ray boot which has the entire show in order as it was performed all of the performances are on 
the official, the two-hour version of the show, but they've been slightly scrambled for whatever reason. In the YouTube or in the the official release, there's a long version and there's a short version. The long version, which is the one we're actually reviewing, does contain all the songs from the show. So there, there's no missing songs, but the order in some cases has been flipped for whatever reason. Maybe because they felt it worked better on video. And also maybe because rather than two discrete sets, they kind of merge them together into one long show. Cool. The week that this show actually happened was also the week that Danny put out the box sets for George. And so Conan O'Brien, the same Conan O'Brien who opened this show, did a George Harrison week on his talk show. He had some artists that were in the show and a couple artists that weren't. On the Monday, he had Beck, who did Wawa. Now, Wawa was done differently in the show, but Beck's a big artist. Ladies and gentlemen, my next guest is here to kick off our week-long tribute to George Harrison with a song from George's album, All Things Must Pass. Let's have a huge welcome for Beck. Either he couldn't stick around or they just couldn't make it work. They couldn't give him a paycheck, although nobody had a paycheck. This is this was all for charity. <laughs> right. That on Tuesday, uh, Nora Jones did Behind That Locked Door, which she did in the show. Uh, Wednesday, Danny actually came and did an interview and did Let It Down. And then on Thursday, the last day of... Conan's week, yeah. Paul Simon came on and he did some nice chat about hanging out with George on SNL. And then he did Here Comes the Song. The song he's kind of famous for. There's a tie there. They did it on SNL, so, you know. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Simon. performances and interviews are available on the internet and they were also on the japanese bootleg blu-ray that i mentioned so available several places for free and for not free if you choose to go looking for the slightly better quality because even hd streaming is is not quite as good as blu-ray so we move on to set two from the evening it starts out with danny harrison doing let it down a killer performance yeah he does it very well so sweetly and divine I can feel you here 
eyes are busy kissing mine And I do It would be kind of a joke to say his voice suits this really well. Well, I mean, you know, we were talking about the, the Savoy Truffle that he maybe kind of was backing off of the George Harrison sound thing. He's not concerned with that on, on this track at all. No, no. If you're not listening closely, you'll think that this is George. Yeah, the slinky little melody, you know, verse melody. He sings very well. The more bombastic chorus. He sounds like George. And I really like the drumming in this live version. It's a little bit harder, just a little bit rockier than than the original on the record. Less Phil Spector. <laughs> despite the number of musicians, this is very much a preview of what we got this time around in the box. You can actually hear each of the instruments, which I like a whole lot. As I said, I prefer the current version of All Things Must Pass to the original. The version that's on the album originally sounded like a recording you couldn't even really imagine how a band would play that because it was just kind of so huge and it's great to hear a band do a great arrangement of this song this is one of my favorites of this whole concert yeah it's, it's good we move on like they've been doing this whole show they like to do the yin and the yang thing we'll do one thing and then we'll do something completely different Ben Harper comes on and does Give Me Love. And we learned that he, he worked really hard on the slide. Yeah, but he still doesn't get the opening bit right. <laughs> well. He tries. But, right. Uh, he gets the other slide parts pretty good, but that, that opening one is like, not quite. Yeah, well, he's not George Harrison. But <laughs> the thing that I liked about it is when you really break it down, it's a very hard vocal. The breathing on it, try singing it. And he's got it down. I mean, he he worked on that, too. They lowered the tempo slightly, but it doesn't hurt the song any. That may have been a concession to being able to sing it. Or being able to play it. We can't go that fast. Slow it down. I got to play this slide. <laughs> and then he, he also does just a little bit of the accent on there, although I don't know if that was just the way he sang, although I don't normally hear that slight accent in there in his voice on, on his other records. Give me hope, help me cope with this heavy load Trying to touch and reach you with heart and soul It's a real iconic vocal from George, so it's kind of hard not to copy some aspect of it that's not what i'm saying it's not the british affectation it's almost like a slightly african or jamaican affectation 
Just slightly. And again, that may just be what I'm hearing. Or it may have been him trying to do the British thing, and that's how it came out. (laughs) Right. The background singers are also really good. There's just enough of them not to have them be overpowering. Yeah, it's a good arrangement. And when you talk about the opening of the song, he doesn't play it badly. He just doesn't play George's part. Well, I mean, that's the thing we were talking about last week, that it's either right or it's not right, and you know when it's not right or even not quite right. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about George's material is because, you know, he didn't just kind of come up with a lead necessarily. I mean, he worked his stuff out. It's melodic and it fits. And when you don't play it, people know (laughs) because it's kind of part of the song. Well, I mean, that's the thing about George's time with the Beatles going, you know, all the way back to Sawyer standing there. He never got the lead that he really thought was the exact right lead for that. So he kept changing it. (laughs) Right. In any two versions of that song, he doesn't play the same lead. Apparently, he wasn't even completely happy with the one that they recorded, but it was probably the best to him at the time. Yeah. As they continued to go out on stage and play it, he would still tinker with it. But his stuff was very worked out. That is George's style, and it drove John Lennon nuts on occasion. (laughs) Right. Just do it. That's good enough. Do you agree with what Ben Harper says in that interview? We've already said we think that it's a great song, but that it doesn't quite get its due in the public consciousness. I I can see that. Yeah, it's not considered one of his big singles. The Beatle people all know it. Oh, for sure. He still had that magic at that point. And so I think everybody knows that song. I think they know that song more than they know the Bangladesh single. The Bangladesh single gets a little more promotion because of the concert. You're always going to hear that song because that's what the concert was about. We can't leave Ben Harper without mentioning... Fistful of Mercy, they had at least one album. I think they recorded a couple other songs, but it didn't last much longer than that. That's a really neat little album, the Fistful of Mercy album, which is uh, Danny and Ben Harper and Joseph Arthur. The one album. I like all the songs off of that record, too. Yeah. It's a little bit more country, a little bit more soulful. It's very different than Danny's solo work. But, you know, I don't know if that was ever just intended as a one-off. Is it at all like the new number two? It's not really anything like that, and it's not anything like Danny's other solo album, In Parallel. It's pretty much the antithesis of those two records. It is all about them playing acoustic instruments primarily, whereas both the new number two and In Parallel are playing around electronically with the music. Right. Next, we're on to the big songs, and we're, we've got a big artist here. Perry Farrell, or as I have in my notes, yes, it's the Jane's Addiction guy. George Harrison is one of the greatest musicians ever. And I might say, well, I'm not going to say he was the greatest rock guitarist, but I would absolutely say he's, he's number one or two as the most underranked mm. rock guitarist. Melodic slide. is Melodic and but also rock man the early beatles had a lot more rock and as it got as it evolved like it should it got more into uh, mature arrangements and compositions but but george harrison was just perfect in his delivery and um leaving room not taking it over but yet announcement 
announcing here's the rock yes interesting choice you wouldn't have guessed that he's the one they choose to come on and play here comes the song (laughs) right his vocal delivery is really interesting (laughs) on that song it's not bad though It's as respectful as he can be. It, again, it's more respectful than I would have expected from the Jane's Addiction guy. Well, George was a Beatle. You know, if you're going to do this song, you have to at least somewhat stick to the blueprint. Now, as a fitting climax to the evening, I'd like to sing my song. Right. And the band does. (laughs) The lead vocal is trying to go somewhere that it just won't. I think that's what I'm saying. Yes. You know, I like Perry Farrell and I like Jane's Addiction and Corner of Papyros. It's just a little bit incongruous with Here Comes the Sun. I wouldn't have put that voice with that song. Fair enough. I agree that he may not have been the most obvious choice. And as we will see for another artist slightly later, he tried. Right. Among the other artists on stage, more Nora Jones, Wayne Coyne of the Flaming Lips, and they're going to get their spot here in a minute. And Danny was also there with them. You know, again, maybe it was Danny's on stage to ensure that things don't go too far afield. <laughs> I'm not sure how everything got chosen, but I assume Danny's down with this, and I don't think he was worried about that. He was a fan. I guess. Okay, so we move on to an act that we've both been looking forward to talking about. (laughs) The man, the legend, Weird Al Yankovic doing What Is Life. I'm a big fan. I've been to two of his concerts, and I know you say it's pretty straightforward musically, and it is. He's got a good voice, and his comedy comes through, and he kind of plays the rock star and and does all the requisite rock star moves as he sings this. and Sort of fake Mick Jagger dancing. <laughs> right. He doesn't have moves like Jagger. Takes a selfie. I will compare Al's moves to one of the other artists we get further down the line in this show. Okay. I just had to go down the list to go, who is he talking about? Now I know who you're talking about, but yeah. Al is doing a lot of that, doing the moves. You know, he's doing some physical shtick, but it doesn't affect his singing. His singing works. Yeah. It's a pretty straightforward version of what is life. What I feel. Can't 
absolutely no sense of irony in in Al's performance of it. Right. And the way the chorus takes off suits his voice really well. What is my life? He does good versions. And then a nice little interview clip with him afterwards. One of the things that really struck me was uh, his sense of humor. Uh, he wrote some of the most twisted <laughs> songs in the, the Beatles' uh, body of work. You know, it, it really kind of struck a responsive chord with me, and I, I, I always thought he was, you know, you know, just extremely cool. Before we leave Al, there's a couple things I want to mention. There's two parodies he actually got to do, and a third, which he almost got to do. One of the first ones he did was a Taxman parody called Pac-Man. Okay. was amongst the things that he actually sent to Dr. Demento back in the early days. Huh. And it starts off with the little 8-bit Pac-Man theme, and, and that is all really pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, always been a big fan. And then the other one, since you're not quite so big a fan of the song, but I still love it, this song is just six words long. Uh. And literally, it's... This song is just six words long. This song After a while, it just gets to be funny. <laughs> you know, the first couple of times, oh, okay, it's just a stupid little parody. And then it's like, as it keeps going, it's like, yeah, yeah, you're right, Al. <laughs> That's funny. And then the other one, which he did live, but was not given permission to do. He had written a uh, Live and Let Die parody called Chicken Pot Pie. <laughs> And he couldn't do it? He went to Paul and asked Paul for permission, and Paul went and said, you can do it live, but no, you know, I can't be seen supporting the consumption of animals. So Al has and does occasionally do it live, but he never got to record it. Oh, that's unfortunate. When we were young. Made a great liver pate. You know he did, you know he did, you know he did. But if there's one thing in this world that I like better than a corned beef on rye, it's chicken pot pie. The horns are, are replaced by chickens going. Ha, 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 ha.
it's pretty funny, actually. You can find audience recordings of it on YouTube. <laughs> I get it. Paul didn't want to be seen supporting that. And it's like, eh. Oh, and, you know, this is Paul McCarty. Maybe he just like, no, I don't think that's funny. Yeah. Did Paul play on piggies? I think he did. Huh. But they were all sort of vegetarians at the time. Fresh off of India, as they say in anthology, sitting around eating lousy vegetarian food. <laughs> what do we see the meeting and get back? We see the meeting toast and marmalade. There's, there's no animal products in that, although there's butter. Now we're getting political. <laughs> we could talk a little about that. We were not too much, but just a little bit. So. <laughs> All right. On to Nora Jones with Behind That Locked Door. Yeah. So It's ever so slightly more country than George's original. Yeah, but I think George's is, was kind of faux country anyway. So, yeah, it's more authentic. Sounds good. She sings it very well. They bring the organ up in the mix a lot more than George actually did. And there are actually probably a few original lines, maybe. Neat track. That's one of the ones that I would say was kind of an underrated track. But it was never really meant to be a hit single. No. But, I mean, they could have released it as a country single, even George's version, and, and that might have worked. They might have been able to get some traction on country airplay. You know, if Dick James had been working for George, he'd have country artists cutting that thing right away. They heard the song. They listened to it. All the people that were working with Ringo on Bukua Blues, the old school country. And we know that, you know, they were listening to the Dylan album, to the Nashville Skyline album. And we know that they were at least in part listening to All Things Must Pass. Not during Boku Blues. In that era. Yeah. Within that year, let's yeah, say. Yeah, but I think All Things Must Pass came out a lot later than Boku Blues was being recorded. They were all hanging around together at yeah. that period in time. Yeah, <laughs> Ringo. Ringo was. <laughs> well, in particular, but but George, too. I mean, uh, you, you go to yeah. the, the museum in Nashville, and they actually have an All Things Must Pass display, believe it or not. Is it all through Pete Drake? Largely. Yeah. Now, the one on this set, which we may differ on a bit, Brian Wilson and Al Jardine with My Sweet Lord. Al Jardine, there's a little quote from, from him there that, that Brian was always the spiritual one of the Beach Boys, and, and he was the one who introduced them all to meditation. I'm sure Mike Love appreciated that a lot. Not. Well, yeah. Mike Love wants to take credit for all of that. Yeah. But, you know, Brian was way into that stuff in 66 and 65, 66. And I'm not surprised that he would be familiar with the Maharishi before Mike Love. Mike was just louder about it. <laughs> and remains louder about it. Yeah. I mean, he was he was definitely a, a disciple. This version, first off, you got to say that Brian is not and has not been the greatest of live performers, certainly since this show, probably since 2000. 
He's been uh, low energy is the kind way of uh, saying what Brian is like on stage sometimes. Yeah. When he did the smile concert, I felt like he was there for the material and pulled it off pretty well. And that was what, 2004, 2005. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, you know, we're still like about 10 years before this show. Paul is 81 now. And so is. Brian and some people handle old age better than others. So I think he's been not what he was for a while. But as far as this version of this song, he's trying. Uh, I don't know how successful he is, but he's trying. That would be true of his performance anyway, for the most part. I mean, he's trying, but his skill set is not what it was. So what is Al Jardine up there doing? <laughs> support <laughs> he's singing just ever so slightly but it almost seems like he's just up there to make sure that brian gets through it yeah i think that's true to a degree i mean don't you feel like the end of the song is kind of like no one's really sure what's happening next brian continues to sing and then they stop and then he comes back and i don't know there's a very definite reason that they have arranged this big chorus of singers in the way that they did yeah You know, it's like, okay, no matter what happens up front, we're going to get through the rest of the song. Brian may just zone out at any time. And I think they knew that. Despite all of that, it's not a bad version of the song. No. I think I would have liked to have heard Brian do it when he was a little bit more there on the live stage. That's fair enough. It sounds like I'm ragging on Brian. It's not the man. And I'm not either, you know. The man really is a genius and all he's done, but he's not what he once was. And that's just the way it is. So saying that, the fact that he tried as hard as he did and was as reasonably successful as he was in doing this version of the song, you know, good on him. Right. It wasn't a 100% success, but it was at least a... 60 70 percent success i would say right my other question about that do you think the choice of brian wilson for this song was kind of intentional do you think it really was brian wilson's choice or did they assign it to him because there is kind of a little message there about the whole circle of life thing we're gonna get someone who's respected but there's also no doubt that he's not fully on his game. And singing My Sweet Lord, that's to a certain extent what the song is about. Yeah, I think the, the song and the artist were paired. Which is 
at least to an extent, a smart move. Uh, and for people who aren't looking for the meaning behind it, it's like, oh, okay, sure, great. They got Brian Wilson up there. Cool. Yeah. But I do think there was the ever so slight bit of messaging in choosing Brian Wilson to do this song. Yeah, I would agree with that. And like I say, you know, Al Jardine is and remains brilliant. I just kind of wish he'd gotten to do a little bit more. Yeah. Al Jardine saves some of those Brian live shows. Right. To have him up there just snapping and singing every so often, it's like, oh, well, I would like to hear you do a little bit more. That's nice for him, but he knew his role there and he did it. Clearly his ego didn't require... Any stoking, no. Right. Black Rider, which is a group that I didn't know much about, they're next up with Isn't It a Pity? Yeah. They're from Australia. Australia. And I thought it was very faithful to Georgia's slide. Another one where just having a woman sing the song changes the feel ever so slightly. Yeah, this feels like a lost relationship kind of song now, which it only had done a little bit before, uh, certainly with the original and with some of the other versions of it that have been done through the years. How did you feel about the song before? Well, I mean, you know, maybe it's the fact that I know too much and that it really is all tied into the Beatles break up, the break each other's hearts and cause each other pain. I hadn't ever really so much interpreted that as being a love affair relationship. I only vaguely associated that with, you know, what was going on with George and Patty. When it's up here and it's a woman singing it, it's like, and again, that may just all be my own issues, problems with my head, but it's like, oh, it can be personal. The thing that was really great was having female vocalists. It can be seen as a song about the end of a romantic relationship. Right. Whereas before, it's like, oh, okay. I just kind of took it as anything. I mean, a band is one thing, certainly graduating, leaving school, you know, any of these life milestones where you're moving away from a certain group of people and moving on to the next phase. You, you have to say goodbye to a lot of people, and a lot of times that will lead to misunderstandings and hard feelings. Yeah. One of those is certainly a romantic relationship, but 
we always end up tying these things back around to romantic relationships, you know, largely because pop music is still an art about the love song. Right around that time, I think I read an interview where George basically said, all of my songs are about God. You know? Well, he said that about something as well. Right. Which conversely is one that everyone always says, oh, that's a love song. Right. But particularly with this song, I always felt like the ending gave it away. They are singing the melody to Hey Jude. So... It had to be about the band. <laughs> well, here and in the concert for George version, they don't even bother hiding it like they did on the original record. You know, it it is na 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 na. Oh yeah, yeah, just like on this. That's what they're singing. Yeah, but they don't sing "Hey Jude." They sing "Is it a pity?" They're not going to be that blatant about it, and it wouldn't have made much sense anyway if they were right. hey, Jude. Hey, Jude. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. So, to me, it's always been about the band, this particular song. But I agree, it's one of the great things about good songwriting is that it could be about several things. Maybe the fact that it's a woman just turns my head in that direction a little bit more. Right, right. All right, so here's the one which I think Weird Al was almost trying to do a parody of, Butch Walker with Any Road. Yeah, I love this. Oh, do you? Oh, absolutely. You know, I said Al was playing a straight. I almost thought Butch Walker was going over the top intentionally, almost trying to do a comedy version of it. Oh, uh, really? Um, my notes go, it's a wonderful version. It's punkish. He was in a, a band called South Gang, which is a glam band. It's, I, I just thought this was great. I've been traveling on a wing and a prayer by the skin of my teeth, by the breath of a hair. Traveling where the forest winds blow, in the sun on my face, in the ice, in the snow. Sometimes you're cool, you know, but you end up playing, you know, ah, yeah, it's somewhere, and if you don't know where you're going, what? any road will take you there. Okay, so this was more middle of the performances for me. It's interesting. He, he he very much, as Al did, he does the whole rock star thing. Rock star thing, yeah. You compare what he's doing here to, to Marty McFly in Back to the Future, it's like <laughs> he does everything that Michael J. Fox did in Back to the Future here. <laughs> it was clearly a big influence <laughs> on Butch Walker. <laughs> I will say I thought it was a little bit over the top, but, I mean, Any Road is, uh, I guess, you know, like we were saying with the art of dying, I kind of don't like when they stretch it out of shape. You can go within some bounds, but this is very much a, I'm trying to do something a little bit different with it. Yeah. So you didn't like it because of that? I will appreciate that sometimes. I don't like this one as much for the same reason I didn't really like the art of dying so much just a little bit too over the top well you know i guess i like over the top <laughs> <laughs> wonderful version is what i put wrote down okay great thing about music you know we can all have different opinions the part that i do like a whole lot is that guitar break at the very end
from that midway through the last verse through the play out of the song. It's like, well, that's really cool. But the lead and then the prancing is like, hey, okay, all right, we'll take it. Song number nine is I'd Have You Anytime by Karen Elson. She apparently started out as a model and still has one foot in that world. She was at Stella's uh, big show last year and tweeted on it. Right. She does this with Nora Jones. When it's the two of them harmonizing, I like that a whole lot. Yeah, that was cool. She was also Jack White's former wife. I didn't know that. Yeah. That kind of explains why... If she were already interested in going into music, she would have been encouraged and turned in that direction a little bit. But she is primarily a model. Yes. The version that she does here, it's almost like a torch song version. (laughs) She's got a dress for that. (laughs) That as well. (laughs) Decent version. One of the lesser songs for you in this set, huh? Yeah, Yeah, it's all right. I like it a little bit more. You like it a little bit less. Okay. It's not wonderful. (laughs) We move on to Cold War Kids uh, singing Taxman. There's a little interview clip in there. I guess in a way it's it's a very, um, it's sarcastic. It kind of has like a punk like spirit to it. Like it's, it's a little, it's angry, but it's of course like all these beautiful melodies and everything. that was a little bit interesting particularly when you compare it to what Questlove was writing about in the revolver book it's also interesting because he completely changes the melody in order to emote he doesn't really sing the melody to tax man so all those wonderful melodies he's decided he'd change and you know i think he sounds a little bit like conan Okay. I wasn't really impressed with this, to tell you the truth. I tend to agree. This qualifies as one of the lesser and probably, you know, pretty far down the list in terms of performances from this show. Yeah, it it would be a good song to go get yourself a Coke or something. Bathroom break. Yeah. I don't know. Have we heard anything from Cold War Kids since then? I haven't. And they may be great. I just didn't find that this performance was all that great. This leads into, uh, you know, we <laughs> mentioned that he, he'd been on stage once already in the show. Wayne Coyne, the flaming lips with it's all too much. The flaming <laughs> lips are a psychedelic band, right? It's a great choice of a band for this song. And this is a pretty great version in my mind. Totally. The song, 
allows Wayne to alter his voice in a way that he likes that he does on other songs of the Flaming Lips. So it's really cool. And that wash of psychedelia works with the song really well. I was trying to figure out what that instrument was at the very end. There's a woman who, who has a bow and is playing something which at least partially looks like an electric violin, but it has two necks to it. Very strange. I don't know if it's an Asian instrument or if it's something that they've just sort of cooked together for the show. Right. And what's going on with the keyboards? You got the Roland and then you got what looks like a little Casio on top of it. Yeah. And they're going back and forth and playing between the two of them. Yeah. It's probably exactly that. Okay. This is a great version. It's very much psychedelic. Wayne Coyne and the Flaming Lips are, they're actually good buddies with Sean, Sean Lennon. They had gone out on the road together actually previously, and Sean and Wayne Coyne did Lucy in the Sky on Letterman right around this time, maybe a year before. That's cool when you get to perform with one of the kids. <laughs> They're actually pretty good buddies. They collaborate a fair bit musically, Sean and Wayne Coyne, that is. I don't know that Danny ever did anything again with the, the Flaming Lips. Again, we get a little interview clip. It isn't just music. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a way of being. It's a, it's a way of, you know, what you want to say. I mean, I don't know about everybody else, but I just kind of jump for joy the whole time, even if I'm f***ing it up, you know, it's like... It's like, look, we get to play these songs and no one's stopping us. Yeah, and it's a great performance. You can tell that they're getting off on it. It's really good. Okay, so we go into the last couple of tracks. Is he bringing everybody back on the stage tracks? It seems like they decided they'd have one for the guys and one for the girls. We start on track 12, which is uh, Handle With Care. That's a good opportunity for a bunch of people to sing. It's it's very much a sing along song. Danny starts it out obviously with with the George bit. Although he's not playing the guitar on it, although he he would when he did this with ELO. On that last tour, he came out and, and started it off and, and was actually playing the guitar on that. So he knows the chords. There's no reason why he couldn't play the guitar this time. But <laughs> he chose not to. I mean, again, logistics and things probably. So everybody gets 
a verse or half a verse, and they all love doing the Dylan thing. Everybody got somebody to lean on. Put your body next to mine. Dream on. They all just do it exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure. Is, is that all Dylan? I think that's Tom Petty, too. <laughs> it's Dylan out front for sure. <laughs> but Danny gets a couple of verses, as you would expect. Uh, you got Brandon Flowers. You got Jonathan Bates. You got Weird Al. There's a little bit there where uh, you see Weird Al pushing Wayne Coyne away from the mic. I, that's really <laughs> funny. Right. It's like, I want to sing. I want to sing. And Wayne Coyne, who just done done half a verse. No, get away. I want to sing. <laughs> Lots of fun. End of the show. Uh, everybody's having fun. And then at the very end, you had a keyboard break, which is not part of the original song. Right. You know, maybe because they just needed a way to get out of it. Okay, we're done with this. We, we, need, to, we need to move on. <laughs> All right. And then the uh, Karen Nelson that we were just speaking of. There's a real sense of legacy that is respected, you know, and Danny is he's just such a strong, profoundly beautiful individual, and he really carries the spirit of his father in such a genuine and very longing way as well. You can tell that Danny obviously profoundly misses his father and these things like what we're doing today also it really just connects him to his, the spirit of his father. Okay, all right, that's nice. Yeah. The show closes with the All Things Must Pass, which is not quite so much a, a feel-good sing-along song. No. And, and splitting up the vocals across this is a little bit more awkward. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of a philosophical way to close the show. first verse and then you got ann wilson you got karen elson and then you got Nora jones right and for some reason lisa loeb shows up in the back yeah, yeah she's not singing or, or you know she's singing but she's singing as part of the chorus but it's like that's lisa loeb isn't it i mean you can't miss those glasses <laughs> right the youtube version the closing credits do get cut off but that you can find them on some of the other versions, some of the shorter versions of the show that are on YouTube. If you want to go look for something in the closing credits. Yeah. And as the film had opened with Danny doing a voiceover of some George clips, the film ends that way as well. 
So all in all, I think I liked the first half a little bit better than the second half. But in general, it was a pretty good to very good show. I agree. There were some really good performances, uh, enough to recommend it. Amongst the things that I found while I was doing some research, Nora Jones was just on Conan's podcast. While they didn't specifically talk about that show, they talked about things which were related to the show, which were kind of interesting. Like? Well, in particular, they're having a discussion about kind of the vibes which come off of, you know, special instruments, magical instruments that played on big hit records. And of course, you know, Conan talks about his time of getting to hold all of George's guitars. You know, do you want to hold the 1963 Gretsch duo jet that my dad played in the cavern? Oh, wow. And I was thinking I shouldn't touch it. It's like I will defile it. And then you realize it's a guitar. Yeah. And um, it needs to be played. It, it wants to be played. It wants to be. Well, actually, the guitar did see me and say, no, not him. <laughs> not him! <laughs> First time I'm Robin Knock. <laughs> and then Nora Jones tells this story about pretty early on when she was about 17 or 18 was when she really first started to, to reconnect with Ravi. While they were building this relationship, she flew over and, you know, uh, Ravi just said, oh, get changed. We're going to go to George's. She d- he didn't tell her which George it was that they were going to go see. <laughs> and so, she, you know, she, she's, she's all jet lagged and everything. It's like, oh, OK, fine. Well, you know, whatever you say, whatever you you want to do. And so she she got changed and, you know, the car pulls up and she like realizes it's Friar Park. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, they, they go inside, they, they, they have a really nice dinner, and then, you know, as all dads do, uh, Ravi says, oh, Nora is learning to be a piano player. Maybe she'll play something for you. And she was just like, you want me to play for George Harrison? <laughs> and so That's she right. went up. But I sat down and I played an old Hoagie Carmichael song called <laughs> The Nearness of You for George. <laughs> and he was so sweet. And he, it was just a very funny moment that I just now remembered. And he, he like, I'm sure he loved it. Yeah. I mean, he was kind about it. <laughs> I don't know. He, <laughs> if he hated it, he, he, he pretended he loved it. <laughs> he was- That's great. She looked at the piano and this was a piano that John Lennon had given to George because John had painted the side of it. Wow. So, you know, not only just like, that was the first time she met George Harrison, she actually played a uh, Beatle piano. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, so yeah, I, I would say that I got a chance to play on a, a really kind of special instrument. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's really kind of a neat story, I think. That's great. Of course, uh, knowing Lennon, he'd be like, oh, that crap piano. <laughs> that's true. So, well, I mean, it was it had well, I, a place of honor in Friar Park for a number of years. It may still, I don't know. <laughs> it was a crap piano. That's why I gave it to George. <laughs> well, I mean, John also was fond of giving Ringo guitars. Either guitars he didn't want or just, no, oh, Ringo like that. And Ringo has like two or three copies of, of The Rick. That's funny. Chris, I have a friend who's got like 30 bases, you know. It's kind of a shame that they haven't done something like this more recently. Uh, you know, I think I'd like to see 
current artists uh, attempting something like this again. I mean, you know, Danny doesn't need to do it every year or even, you know, every five years, but we're, we're to the point now that next year, maybe when it's 10 years since this show, it might be kind of cool for him to attempt something like this again. And we have a whole new crop of artists that we won't know 10 years from now. <laughs> this is true. Of the ones that were chosen here, uh, Ann Wilson was probably a, a big success. Brian Wilson, I mean, we talked a lot about that. It, it's a shame, but it wasn't as bad as it could be. <laughs> Flaming Lips was a good choice. Britt Daniel was a good choice. Yes. And I think Ian Asbury was a good choice. That was a nice and unexpected success. Yeah. And then Nora Jones, who, as we all know now, she's part of the family. Right. It made perfect sense for her to be there. Right. And then Danny was, of course, a success <laughs> throughout the show. He kept the trains running on time. And the versions, probably at least in part to him, were all quality versions. He would, he, since, since he was running it, if there's something that he felt wasn't right, he would at least tell the artists. Right. That is George Fest. Anything else for this week that you want to mention on our way out the door? Hmm. Uh, no. No. <laughs> no. All right. Well, I just had a birthday, so <laughs> oh, happy right. birthday to me. Absolutely. We're all getting older. All right. So we will be back next week with a new show absolutely see you then you don't eat any cats they don't taste good to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. You know, I just want to say firstly thanks to everyone who's been involved, everyone from the guys, uh, the Best Fest and the Jameson uh, Neighborhood Fund who are doing the concert on Sunday and all of you guys and Jimmy's band, everyone, you know, has been so sweet and, uh, you know, all the guys from the different various wonderful bands um, that you may have spotted on stage with me, uh, very, uh, Danny and friends, like, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> They're really not fond of Amazing. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They really don't like you. Uh, I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.